I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility podcast. We're at an exciting time in the mobility sector with new technology causing us to continually question the way we move both goods and people. My job is to talk to the people leading this revolution and to highlight the challenges and opportunities we face as we develop and implement safe, sustainable, and equitable mobility solutions. This podcast is brought to you by FEV. Check us out on LinkedIn or learn more at FEV.com. Today's guest is Alan Dowdle. Alan is Vice President of Business Development at Rightspeed, a company providing and designing efficient range-extended electric vehicle powertrains. So we start the conversation talking about Alan's background, which is interesting. He's been in a few very d- different fields, it, it seems. And we talk about kind of what, what's drawn him to the three, and, and as you'll hear, kind of the overarching theme is this idea of structural shifts in industry, um, including now the electrification of propulsion systems for mobility applications. We also talk about Rightspeed's approach to how, how they're handling this. So we talk about the, the importance of first principles engineering when coming in and designing, trying to uh, create an optimal system. Their unique role is an end-to-end turnkey provider for electrified propulsion systems. And then we also talk kind of in, in detail about a couple different applications in which a range-extended electric propulsion system might be attractive for heavy-duty applications. So if you're not familiar, range-extended, basically that means it's an electric vehicle, except for it has some sort of onboard generator, which allows you, in, when needed, to uh, extend the range of, of the vehicle, as, as the name implies. And um, as we talk about, there's a couple of specific areas in which that's it's very valuable. Additionally, at the end, we, we riff on uh, a bit of this idea of the overlap of engineering and business development. So Al and I both have engineering backgrounds and then now find ourselves more on the business side of technology companies. And we, we talk a bit about kind of how the, the interesting uh, opportunities and, and challenges that presents and, and how those two fields may, may be more similar than, than they seem. So overall, really fun conversation. Seems like a great guy and interesting work. Uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Alan, Alan Dowdle. Today, I'm joined by Alan Dowdo. Alan, thanks for coming on. Hey, Brandon. Nice to see you. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, could you please get us started by explaining a bit about your background and what you're doing now? Sure. Um, I started out as an electrical engineer and um, spent the first part of my life um, on nuclear submarines in the U.S. Navy, uh, operating with nuclear reactors, driving the submarines. Um, and for a person who's technically curious, it's a great place to learn from water chemistry to cryptography to sonar weapons. Um, and, uh, and after leaving the, the Navy, I went to work for Corning. Um, I spent the first part of my career there in optical fiber uh, manufacturing and then, and then moved into business development and really enjoyed I mean, kind of watching the build out of the networks in the US and in Europe and, and spent some time in Asia helping the telcos there um, we were selling a lot of fiber cable into Asia at the time and, and uh, saw what was happening in China. I, I, uh, I spent about 10 years in China and then got involved in the, uh, the LCD glass business um, manufacturing, um, which is predominantly in Asia, a lot of it moving to China. And after 10 years in China, I came back to the, the States and saw what was happening in electrification and felt really fortunate to be able to live through you know, three different technology discontinuities. I found uh, ChargePoint. Um, I joined ChargePoint as head of business development and strategy. 
help them uh, work through uh, opening up of the network, as well as um, a focus on fleet uh, EV charging. We acquired a small company called Kisensum out of Oakland that had the kind of the best, not only you know char- charging and smart charging algorithms, but also um, V2G technology uh, on the software side as well. So really enjoyed my time there. Um, and more recently, you know, was looking to, to move to the OEM side and found RightSpeed late last year and the technology here and, and have been with the company uh, since November and it's been a blast. Cool. So we'll, we'll spend most of the time here talking about RightSpeed and what you guys are doing because I think it's, it's very interesting. But before we get there, I'd, I'd be curious a bit, bit more about your background. So you, you mentioned the, this term technology discontinuity and that you look at so yeah, optical cables to new glass technology and now electrification. Can you speak a bit about kind of what drew you to those or what would tie those together or ties that together in your mind? Well, there, there are structural shifts that happen in industries when these happen. I mean, you know, digital photography and, and everyone kind of jokes about the Kodak moment. But, if you know, if you look at like Fuji and Fujifilm, they actually made that transition. So I'm very impressed with companies that uh, have technologies in the old space and they can make that transition. So, for example, Corning was leading manufacturer and, and technology provider for CRT TVs which allowed them a possibility to play an LCD glass and made the transition. They were also um, into lighting, but when the LED technology discontinuity happened, they weren't really able to make that that transition. Um, And this is how new companies get formed. You have the ability to open up new partnerships and and, and that's definitely happened in, in telecommunications. It's happened in, and many technologies, and, and we see it happening today in electrification for vehicles. Is there anything particular from from that experience of going through and, and seeing what uh, what results in success and what doesn't in in other technology shifts um, that kind of fueled you? So, so you came and worked with ChargePoint, and then now with with RightSpeed. If you look at the industry, there's a lot of entry points in the electrification space with different places. I mean, if you look at the the, the breadth of uh, different touch points I've tried to interview on this podcast. There's a lot of ways you could potentially attack this. What, what drew you to the companies you've been with so far? Well, I think first principles engineering is really important. So um, not pivoting from your, your goal and your business case, having a core technology that is the basis um, versus a systems integrator approach. And I think that makes the difference for long-lived you know, co- companies that, that do well, that don't, you know, don't necessarily get acquired. And, and, and um, so that definitely is, is something I look for when I look at companies is do they own their own technology? Have they developed it? Um, or are they more of an integrator where they're, they're pulling off the shelf technologies? Hmm. And how about, so, so my, uh, my career trajectory so far has been in the, the business development side and that, that's more kind of where you are now. So this is maybe a, a self-indulgent question, but so now that you've been in the electrification space for what, four years, I think, or around there, right? Um, right how now. how are you thinking about it differently, or how how have you been? How are you different in your role or your leadership role now than you were when you started with ChargePoint? Well, first of all, I mean, you have to be patient. In any of these technology discontinuities, there are um, it, it takes time. It takes time for adoption. It takes time for uh, t- technologies to kind of come into the market, be tested, to potentially fail, and um, and that's okay. I think that's that's fine as long as you 
again, stick to your kind of pr first principles. Um, the, the great thing, you know, for a business development person is it opens up lots of possibilities for partnerships and kind of go-to-market um, strategies. For, for example, at ChargePoint, when I first joined, ChargePoint really had a vertical siloed network. And while I was there, we started doing a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, roaming. And, and the principle was, you know, look at the driver's experience. So the ability to um, take one ATM card and go to pretty much any ATM is a nice model. You don't have to, you know, kind of limit your choices. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the time, if you had a charge point card, you kind of needed to go to a charge point station to use it. If you had an, you know, a, a competing uh, network card, you'd have to go there. So uh, we made the decision to start the peer-to-peer -peer roaming process, um, which allowed much better experiences for drivers. And the network implications of that, like mul multiply. So, so through those partnerships, you know, we made ourselves better and also our partners um, better. I think the same is true in uh, powertrain engineering. And as we move to battery electric, you, you see a number of people who are uh, focused on battery technologies. You see some people who are focused on maybe hydrogen range extenders and then companies like ours where we have both e-axle uh, battery and, you know, connectivity, even data and telematics, um, you know, technology. So, um, provides a lot of opportunities um, for, for partnerships and, and collaboration. Cool. So how would you, so perfect, perfect transition, how, how would you describe then what RightSpeed does and, and who RightSpeed is? It, it's, uh, so I'll say we're a full powertrain um, engineering company that is in the process of commercializing that technology. Um, it's good to say what we're not. We're not an integrator of off-the-shelf technology. So everything that we do uh, has been designed internally um, with the idea in mind of having the most efficient, highest torque powertrain available, um, and really not settling, you know, for anything less as we as we we go down that journey. Um, and 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 so. Uh, again, you have to look at the situation where in the ICE world today, you can buy a Volvo vehicle that has a Volvo powertrain, or you can buy a Cummins transmission, there's a Cummins uh, engine with a uh, Allison transmission and a Dana axle. So we can provide um, the e-axle, the battery pack, um, the software and control systems to the instrument cluster, including, you know, the, the, uh, the telematics. Um, and, and data offload, which is kind of really unique in the in, in the world of, uh, of EV powertrains today. So it won't be uh, it won't won't be an OEM, right? So there won't be someone driving around a right speed Reeve four thousand vehicle in in a couple of years, at least as, as of now. That's not the plan, right? Our focus is on the powertrain. Um, doing the chassis and doing the cab and so forth is certainly. Um, an area that is less, uh, I would say, technology uh, intensive. And so it's much easier, you know, in, in, in to move into the chassis space or to adopt a chassis and, and, and provide a full vehicle. But right now we're, we're focused on the powertrain. And, and the reason for that is we have kind of a dual pronged path to market. We can go to new vehicles uh, and we're, you know, OEM agnostic. So, um, so we've done, you know, a Suzu vehicle, We've done Mac LR vehicles, we've done Freightliner vehicles, we've done uh, transit buses. And, and so our, our platform is adoptable to any, adaptable to any um, vehicle platform. The other thing that we can do that's unique is we can repower vehicles. So 
Um, pretty much every chassis goes through a midlife crisis where uh, the life of the chassis may be you know, 10 to 15 years, depending on use. And uh, around the four, five, seven year point, they often get a full bore replacement of the engine, the transmission, um, maybe even the final drive. Um, and at that point, or even before that, we could come in and provide a, a new powertrain, a battery electric powertrain, and get really the most polluting, uh, dirtiest um, vehicles in a, in a medium heavy duty fleet off the road. Yeah, I think that's an, an underappreciated point too, because if you look at the uh, percentage share of pollution on the vehicle based on age of a vehicle, uh, yeah, it, it might be easy enough to think that every ICE engine out there pollutes the same, but that's definitely not the not the case given how much there's been advancements in the engine and the after treatments and such. That's right. In fact, you know, a lot of people are super excited about transitioning the passenger vehicle and the light duty space over and the effect it's going to have on the pollution from the transportation side. But if you look at um, the po pollution created, 4% uh, of the vehicles on the road are the medium and heavy duty vehicles. And they create 30% of that uh, transportation uh, carbon footprint. And they burn 24% of the fuel. So if you can get just a, you know, for every few vehicles, medium heavy duty vehicles, you transition to battery electric, you're effectively changing hundreds of, of light duty uh, passenger cars. So it has a, you know, a much bigger impact on a per vehicle basis. Could you speak to kind of the, the current market set aside? I don't think I've, I've had this specific discussion yet on the, the medium heavy duty uh, propulsion system side on, on the podcast. So what, what do you have a feel for kind of the current mix out there? I assume vast majority is, is diesel driven, maybe some CNG, um, a touch of, I know battery electric and hydrogen is being looked at, but do you have a, a feel for rough percentages or what that looks like? So, I mean, up, up into class six, it's, um, you know, gas powered, and then you get into diesel, you know, as you get into okay. class five and class six, and then everything above that's pretty much diesel. Um, some of the very large fleets like refuse vehicles have been um, regulated into the CNG space. Um, so they've kind of seen this rodeo before. They've had to transition their uh, powertrains and drivetrains into CNG, for for better or for worse. So they're you know they they've seen it, they've had to do it, and so now with battery electric, um, they're you know it, it's again the same kind of journey that that journey took 10, 15, 20 years. This journey will take the same amount, but it's primarily um, diesel that is the you know the major problem that we're going after. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my understanding of what right speeds, at least short-term focus, is more of a range extender application. Is that correct? So um, the, the company's been positioned as a range extender company for some time, but we're, if you really look at what we are, we're a battery electric company um, for medium heavy-duty powertrains with a range extender option. Hmm. Um, and so so that that's a kind of a different position. So, so we're... At, I think about half of our volume in the future is going to be fully battery electric and the other half, maybe some form of range extender. And we could debate whether it could be a, a diesel range extender, which in you know some places might still make sense, a CNG range extender, you know, an RNG powered range extender with RNG, you actually can get a non-zero emission vehicle that has a negative carbon uh, footprint, right? So, so RNG has, has uh, it, it's, it's positioned in the market. 
Um, and there's a lot of interest and activity around hydrogen as well. So you can have a hydrogen, you know, powered range extender. Um, but underneath that, uh, you, you basically have the, the powertrain because the range extender sits on top of the battery. And you kind of think about it like having your own onboard charger, either like a 50 kilowatt charger or 80 kilowatt charger that you carry around with you all the time. And then use a side um, either on, you know, the, the battery state of charge or the geoposition of the vehicle, when to charge um, um, the vehicle, which gives us another um, um, advantage to play for fleets that are mission critical. Um, you can imagine if you are um, a utility or a uh, environmental company and you've got a hurricane or you've got fires and power is out and you just send a fleet of vehicles um, away from the home base to go deal with that, how are they going to get charged if the power if the power's out? So, so having that onboard charger, so-called range extender, provides a, a, a big advantage. Um, also, when you start looking at the weight trade-offs and longer distance routes, range extenders um, can make sense for some fleets um, as, as well. So we really have to look at the application of the fleet and then decide whether it's a full battery electric, because we can do full battery electric. They can get a seven, a class seven vehicle uh, to 500 miles of range, for example, which is enough for almost every, you know, application space. Um, and then, and, and so um, you really have to look at the application of the fleet and what the, what the fleet operational drive cycle is before you make the final decision. I guess even for a, a relatively consistent 500 mile uh, route that I would imagine there's some cost and weight benefit, right? Cause you can, you can, if you can downsize the, the battery pack or, or how do, uh, how do companies or your customers think about that? Yeah. You, I mean, one of the surprising things is um, as you get, you know, in a, in a full BEV full, full, you know, battery electric vehicle, that's, that's um, once you start passing certain weight limits, you begin trading off cargo. So uh, some of the ones the, of, the, of the vehicles, like the, the Class Eight tractor trailer type vehicles, are trading off, and, and, and you'll see in, in multiple calculations the let's say so-called uh, power uh, payload penalty, where um, you can't fully load the vehicle because it's carrying so much battery weight along with it. Um, you know the the, uh, the, uh, the the space industry had this problem with trying to launch you know, you know vehicles into orbit because the more fuel you added to get it into orbit, the more fuel you burned and you could never really get there. Well, they solved that through boosters and dropping the boosters. And so the solution here you know could be a range extender solution, which um, gets you a, a lighter package so you can carry your full um, um, payload. Um, a little bit more complexity, but a lot more operating flexibility for the fleet operator. Can you speak at all to, so in the, the past car space, at least, uh, NVH is, is a challenge with range extender uh, applications, right? When you, when you have the engine turning on or off uh, at, at certain times, I imagine that your, your, the driver is maybe far enough removed that it's uh, maybe a different equation for medium heavy duty, but can you speak, is that something that has been an issue or that's been, that needed to be uh, specifically addressed? Well, if it's, a, if it's a piston range extender, it's a very small engine, you know, 1.6 or two liter engine. And, and, you, and yeah. even vehicles now, stoplights are starting and stopping and, you know, people deal with it. It's not, not, a, not a problem at all. So you barely even really notice that it's happening. Obviously, if it's a hydrogen range extender, you don't, there's no noise at all. So you really don't, yeah. you're not going to, you're not, you're not going to hear it. Um, if it is uh, an emission range extender, you know, you can geofence, for example, if you have a, a transit bus application, you can make sure it's not running during, you know, 
picking up and dropping off. Um, or if you have a, uh, a diesel ban zone or some kind of a zero emission zone, you can geofence it so that you can run the range extender up until that inner ring road and then, and then go to full battery electric, do your deliveries and then charge, you know, on the, on the, on the way back. Um, again, you know, having that flexibility of having a smaller of a smaller battery pack. Yeah, that, that makes sense. How about your, uh, your customers? So who, what are, uh, I guess, what, what are some of like a short list of ideal applications that you see um, over the, in the, the short to medium term for battery electric or range extended electric uh, medium heavy duty vehicles? Well, it's probably good to start with our technology and, and how that technology yeah, applies sure. to various, uh, you know, various markets. And so if you want to go fast and get a, a medium duty vehicle on battery electric, you can buy an off the shelf motor, integrate with the battery pack, and then you basically drop it between the rails and you connect it to the prop shaft that, um, that, that connects to the final drive, the final differential. What the Rightspeed team has done is designed a new electric axle really from the ground up. Like we, we've, drew, we've designed the powertrain for 2030, for 2035, really focusing on efficiency because if you have the most efficient system, you can then have, for example, a smaller battery pack for the same range. That battery pack will cost less, right, for the same range. That battery pack will weigh less, and so you get a, a payload benefit, you know, from that. And by the way, it'll last longer because it's not as big of a battery pack, and 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 it will um, will have a longer life than than a, than a larger uh, battery pack. So there are compounding improvements that happen in your operation cycle when you have the most efficient powertrain. And so what the team did was thought about that and. We run um, smaller electric machines that sit right on the axle, and we, we have a four-speed gearbox. And this provides a couple of advantages. One is higher torque. So one of the problems with the large um, motor systems are that when you first turn them on and you're dumping a lot of current into the motor, you can generate torque, but you're also generating a lot of heat. So there's a lot of heat happening inside that machine. And um, anytime you see heat as an engineer, you don't like it because you're, you've got energy going to waste. Mm -hmm. And that makes the machine inefficient. It also makes it inefficient as a, as a generator when you're re regenerating. And so by having the smaller motors that operate at much higher speeds, you're always keeping the motors in the, the most efficient you know, part of the, the curve. And we have a four-speed gearbox, so a very sh short distance uh, planetary gearbox that allows um, the, the motor lots of mechanical advantage to the wheels. And so we torque like a diesel powertrain, um, which, which means you can grade the vehicle like a diesel you know, powertrain. If you take some of the vehicles that are on their own today and you take them to a 25% grade, you, the vehicle will stall, like the electric vehicle will not get up the hill. And so for certain fleet, the need to grade in certain cities, you can imagine refuse vehicles in New York or in San Francisco, or even going to the transfer station where they've got a grade to do their, their unloading process. Um, those can get, you know, to be 30% grades. And so we've got higher torque, much more efficiency on the powertrain. It sits on the axle. And so the other advantage is now that that prop shaft is no longer there, 
and you can put the battery packs there. You can put additional um, electronic packages like inverters and so forth in between the rails. Um, and, and again, it, it, it's a lower weight um, overall system. So now we have efficiency and we have high torque and you ask about um, the markets we're going after. So the, the, it's medium heavy duty primarily, although there's no reason why we couldn't apply the same technology to a, a, a lighter weight uh, axle or vehicle. Um, but there's not a lot of um, kind of white space. There's, there's white space up in the class, heavy class six and class seven, class eight space, not a lot of competitors there. Um, we're going after, because we're so efficient, we're going after the heavy start stop markets. And so you can imagine the transit agencies for transit buses, um, refuse vehicles, uh, which are doing anywhere between 1,000 to 1,600 uh, pickups a day, starting and stopping, and, and lots of wasted energy going to retarder systems, to the brake pads and so forth. And you know all of that goes away when you go to a fully battery electric system, particularly if you are able to regen all the way down to zero like you can with our with our, our, our gear box. Um, and then also um, like heavier delivery vehicles like beverage delivery, heavy goods delivery is are, are kind of our target markets, really because we have a, a total cost of ownership advantage, like a very large advantage against diesel and a, you know, a two year payback on transit buses, a four year payback on, on delivery vehicles. Um, but even versus other battery electric systems, we're seeing somewhere between a 10 to 15% advantage so that if you're operating your fleet and it um, requires, let's say over a period of time, 100 gigawatt hours of power, the same fleet with the right speed um, powertrain can, can do that same uh, thing with 85 gigawatt hours of electricity, which goes straight to the TCO of the, of the operator. Um, that's not to say we can't go after some of the longer haul routes um, and, and, and those become, become attractive. Um, we're just not quite, we don't have the same efficiency differential there. We're still very efficient, um, but normal motors are also you know, pretty efficient there too. So I would imagine these, these end customers of yours or these markets you're going after, uh, it's pretty TCO driven. And I say, so my father-in-law's in the, uh, the waste, the ref refuge business. And I know the way oh, he tends to maybe think you can, about... make an, you can make an introduction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I imagine TCL driven, and if, if you can come in and, and make a realistic case that it's two to four year payback, and then it's pure profit from from there on, it seems like a com pretty compelling argument to me. Um, what what are your biggest challenges for the? And I know these are your customers' customers, but do you have a feel for like for the the end market? Um, what the biggest challenges or pushback is? So we're, ta we're talking um, directly to the fleets. And so we're engaging directly with fleets and getting a lot of great feedback. Um, and then the way we engage is taking the vehicles into our facility in Alameda. We'll do the initial conversions. We create a product for that platform. And then we can uh, sh ship it to whoever they want to repower. Or that product becomes a new powertrain uh, for that, that OEM uh, potentially. Okay. So... So uh, yes, they are very TCO driven, and and that's the great thing about working with the fleets is they're all running spreadsheets, which is which is awesome, and they make decisions you know based on a you know a, a four year or five year or six year window depending. Um, but the other thing that's happening is just the regulatory space is forcing them to look at this. So you've got you know around the world you've got zero diesel bans or diesel bans, zero emission zones. Um, you've got you know Governor Newsom's executive order in California. 
where you can't, you won't be able to buy a medium heavy duty vehicle uh, that's that's uh, normally, you know, ice type engine after 2035 and, and all go away after 2045. And so they've all, you know, have to begin, you know, that, that planning cycle. And that's a huge challenge because not only they have to think about the transition of the vehicles and the powertrains and potentially, you know, operational cycle changes, if there are any, but they also have to think about infrastructure as well. Um, and, and from my time in charge point, I focused, you know, mostly on fleets the last couple of years. And, and so, you know, that, that, that's a huge challenge. I think, um, you know, getting proven, reliable, safe systems on the road that are performing as expected, I think is a, is a, is a big challenge. And the, um, the industry continues to go through just learning cycles of getting some vehicles into the fleet, learning about them, seeing how they operate, seeing what's required in terms of maintenance, et cetera, and then, you know, guiding their future technology decisions. Um, and a lot of the fleets aren't really um, positioned well to make those kinds of technology decisions. So they, they have to look outside for consultants or rely on their vendors. Um, and so sometimes they're making decisions with, with uh, a little bit less information than we'd like to have. And I think that's where, you know, as a, you know, sort of a technology-based business development person, I can help educate them and take them, you know, through that journey. Um, and, and it's, um, yeah, it's enjoyable. Cool. And when, when you were speaking, I guess the, the two things that you highlighted make, make a lot of sense too. So reliability, uh, I guess for a bus or if someone who's picking up uh, trash, I can imagine it's a nightmare if, if something goes wrong on a, on a vehicle and they're not able to fulfill their route for, for the day. So that makes a lot of sense. And then uh, the other, uh, yeah, the, the charge infrastructure, I imagine is scary if you don't know exactly what, what you're talking. So thinking, okay, how am I going to suddenly get all of this current and voltage that I need? What needs to be done with the with the grid to actually set up a central hub and can i rely that uh, or can i count on charging all these vehicles is the expectation for mo most of these fleets that you'd have i don't know for, for example if something like a, a refuge uh, company all the vehicles charging at the same time seems like a quite a quite a power draw um yeah, how, how would you explain or try to talk when talk someone off a cliff being worried about that type of situation? Well, it, it is a worry. Um, and so, you know, in the old days, you sort of uh, you put diesel in the evening and you go home and sleep like the baby, like like a baby who sleeps all night, not the one that wakes up every hour crying. And uh, but now, you know, you've got your fleet charging. And if the breaker trips at two in the morning and everyone shows up for work at 530 to get ready for the day's mission, um, and the vehicles aren't charged, that's a huge problem. And so, so now you, you know, you start getting into software and notifications and being able to, you know, have, have to change the, the operational cycle a little bit. Like it, it's not doom and gloom, like in general, on a return to base fleet situation, um, there's enough dwell time in the uh, time the vehicles are in depot so that you can get them all charged. And you're really, you're looking at, you know, re replacing the miles, they were spent the previous day. Some people are designing their system so that the vehicle has a two or three day capability across the, the journey um, so that they're not having to charge every night. The, the, the wildfires in California, for example, you know, scare the heck out of people. If, if uh, PG&E turns my power off, I'm gonna get things charged. And so they're, they're building in redundancy, they're building in you know, you know, backup vehicles. 
And, um, and I can speak for a long time about smart charging. So you really don't want to have to return the vehicles to base and then plug them all in at one time. And you get really high demand charges and you've got to have a, you know, an eight megawatt drop, which is going to take you two years to get, get from the utility company. You know, instead you look at the full dwell time and you do a smart charging algorithm across the whole fleet so that when it comes time to leave the depot, everything is charged and, and ready to go. And if any problem happens during that charging cycle, um, the depot operators are notified via text or messages or whatever the, whatever the system is. So it is, um, you have to be thoughtful about the design, but it's totally possible to do. I think, you know, the capability of having a range extender on the right, on the right speed platform gives you one other like piece of security, like in the worst case scenario, we'll just charge it with the onboard charger. It's fine. Right. Um, And and that kind of goes to that, that kind of fleet that needs to go to Florida to clean up after a hurricane, for example. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, two, two quick uh, technical questions I had as, as you're talking, maybe not that technical, but about the uh, the approach that their right speed's taken. So, you it sounds like you're um, developing or you develop a platform for a decently wide range of vehicles. How is the the battery pack configuration there? Is this a uh, modular setup that you you have? Yeah, you can easily plug and play different modules, then just change the outer pack size to fit different structures or how is that taken care of? Yeah. Um, I think you can come work for us. So I'm really proud of the team. Uh, I mean, there are some companies that are 100% focused on, on battery pack. And I think we could be a battery pack, you know, co- company in this space uh, because the, the thoughtfulness that's gone into it. And uh, yes, it is a modular. Um, we have a distributed uh, battery management system. So um, primarily it's, you know, we try to be compact so that we can go between the rails and take advantage of, the, of that space that we free up by not having um, the, the driveline uh, prop shaft there. Um, but we also can package the batteries to go on the outboard sides of the rails if needed. So if you're gonna do like a big bad vehicle, 400 kilowatt hours, 500 kilowatt hours, um, that might be necessary. And we provide the flexibility of packaging uh, there. We also have a unique ability of shutting down a portion of the cells. So not very often, but sometimes you have a bad cell and in most configurations today, that will kill the vehicle. It's got to be towed back to base, game over for the vehicle. Our BMS will shut down that string of cells, um, and it may turn off a little part of the battery pack at that time, but you can still continue your mission and then get back to the base. Um, and you can imagine, you know, as we go through the electrification of, for example, military vehicles or very um, heavy-duty vocational vehicles, that's that's a, that's a big advantage um, as well. We can do uh, what we call high high uh, power uh, packs. These are smaller packs that o- that operate as a buffer between the range extender and the powertrain. Um, and so those are kind of going through heavy uh, discharge cycles, and they're very long lived. They can live for ten years with the with, with the uh, with the pack. We also do high capacity as well. So in the case you don't have a range extender, and you really say, well, I need to hit. Uh, worst case scenario, end of life of the battery pack on the coldest day um, on my worst route, I need to be able to hit 150 miles. You know, we can design and, and put in, you know, a, a 250 kilowatt hour battery pack that will, that will, that will suffice. Um, and so there are special things about the e-axle that I've kind of covered. There's special things about the, the, the battery packs um, as well. And then on top of that, we have the software and the telematics to control 
Um, and we, we have independent uh, drive wheel capability, which gives some advantage to tire scrub and, and turning radius, um, but provides a very stable platform. So eventually what you have now is a class seven vehicle that you can one foot drive, which is a great experience. If you're an EV driver, you hardly ever have to touch the brakes. So your brake brake maintenance, you know, pretty much pretty much goes away. Um, you 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 know you have you have the ability for a lower cost um, you know overall platform, and um, and you've got data coming off of the the powertrain that you can then optimize. You can imagine running an AI on top of it so that a vehicle that is delivered in March is better uh, at the end of April after it's uh, operated for a couple of months. And we've optimized um, the control systems to to the wheels on the on the powertrain. So, um, you know, really nice capability set across the full powertrain. Cool. And another thing too that I think is interesting, at least to, to to me, is the acceleration aspect as well. Um, and anyone who hasn't seen the videos of comparing a diesel to an electric powered uh, Class Eight truck, it's it's like the diesel truck standing still. <clears throat> But yeah, and, and, yeah they're, they're, as you probably know, the refuse drivers are the ones that really test that. Like their goal is to like they have to get through a thousand lifts before they go home. And so it is pick up, accelerate, brake, pick up, accelerate, brake, you know, over and over again. And and in order to make that like a good experience and harness as much of the energy as possible. Um, that's going to brake pads and going to the retarders or going to noise. Like we all know how loud our, our, our just happened this morning. I, my pickups on Monday. And every time I hear that, I'm thinking, you know, there will come a time where I won't hear that anymore because those vehicles are, are going to become, you know, battery electric and, and hopefully with right speed powertrains. Cool. Well, yeah, exciting to hear all that you're working on for, for sure. Uh, so I have a couple of, a uh, couple of more rapid fire questions here and then we can wrap up. So, uh, First one, is there any uh, particular books or is there a book or books that um, that you've read that has had a particular impact for on you in either your personal life or your career? Well, that's a great question. I do. Um, I, you know, my wife makes fun of me because I read more uh, business books and and, the, and those kinds of things. I think the signal and the noise um, is is uh, really interesting. I think uh, thinking fast, thinking slow. Yeah, another great title. Um, I, I use that whenever uh, people talk about schedules and human, like we weren't designed to project out two years and, and milestone deliveries and get really accurate. Like we're, we're really designed to decide whether that rustling in the bush is something that's going to eat us or we're going to eat it. Um, so I think those, those are really good. Um, I'm a huge Bill Bryson fan and I'm, I'm currently reading um, the, the, uh, I forget the title, but it's the ownership of the human body it does a great job going through, uh, health and, 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 and kind of how we were, you know, evolved over time and, and, and inter very interesting aspects. So, um, I think it's like the, the owner's guide to the human body or, or a title like that, but, but, uh, yeah, quite, uh, love to hear your reading list as well at some point. Yeah. Thinking fast and slow is definitely up there. That's, that's one of my favorites and, and both sides. So it's definitely the, uh, the ability to realize when it's time to get into your, whatever your, yourself to mind and, and put together a schedule. And then also realizing when the, the intuition has been programmed pretty well over the last few thousand years. And uh, we should listen to ourselves rather than trying to use our head. The imprint. Yes. What you've been able to imprint on and, and make judgments on. It's very interesting. Yeah. Cool. Uh, how about uh, 
personality strength. So is there anything, well, personality or, or technical, but anything that you think you've a skill or whatever, something that you do well that you've been able to leverage uh, again, either in your, your personal or professional life to, to make the, the most impact you can. Um, you know, I'm very technically curious. Uh, that's what got me into the Navy. And, and I think that's done well. Like I, I love getting deep in, in the technology. I, you know, I, I meet a lot of people in the investment community and in other places where that's a strength for me. Um, my wife jokes that I've, I've never met a stranger. So I enjoy meeting people and getting to know people. Uh, I miss, you know, the conferences. I miss ACT Long Beach. I miss CES, um, you know, be, being out there. And, and, and I'm also never been shy to jump on an airplane and go somewhere and, and see people um, to get deals done. Um, I really, you know, I'm one of those people who really enjoy contracts and contract negotiation in addition to everything else, uh, because at the end of the day, um, when you're, when you're a business development executive or even a general manager who does business development, you have to roll paper. You've got to get the meeting of the minds, you know, solidify, get it onto a document, get it into an MOU, get it into an agreement, and then, and I think, uh, you know, figuring out that with the discounts and the tripwires can, uh, is also kind of very technical and, and interesting. Um, I, you know, I, I was, a, a kind of, kind of worked in the dark fiber world where we would, we would sell optical cables where we wouldn't like you, the customer would buy the cable, but only, they would only own half of the fibers and we would own the other half that is in the ground. And then as they light them, they would pay us as they lit them. And so that was kind of a very unique kind of selling model that, that solves kind of two problems. It got more fiber in the ground earlier. Um, you know, it was like a recurring revenue for, for, for corning at the time. Um, and so coming up with interesting solutions to, to issues and contract negotiation is also kind of a fun thing for me. Yeah, and that's I think more of a technical crowd probably listened to this, so maybe, maybe thinks uh, think, thinks you're being crazy talking as a business development guy. But at the same time, I've I've seen the same thing with an engineering background. It's been surprising talking. I mean, from a negotiation standpoint, or even some of the legal terms and stuff you're negotiating, it uh, it feels more like a technical problem than I would have previously expected when I heard that people were doing business. And I mean, look, look at IP. So when you know people often think you know getting under NDA is something that protects you. It actually, in my mind, makes it more dangerous engineers are more likely to speak openly and more freely when they, you know, they're under NDA, but that doesn't prevent, you know, trade secrets from, from moving from one party to the other, for example, um, creating new companies, holding companies for intellectual property as you're doing joint development, um, you know, is, is one, one of the you know, solutions that, that I've done that I've seen. Um, and so even in, you know, technology collaborations, you can get pretty technical on the, the kind of back and forth and the go between on the, on the parties. So I think the last kind of real question I have is um, in your line of work and, and feel free to uh, define that however you'd like. What, what's a, a common misconception you see? Well, um, so, you know, people who work on the commercial and sell site are, are not technical. I see that, I hear that a lot. And I, th I think that, uh, you know, that that's not necessarily true. I, I know a lot of, um, you know, engineers who, who have become general managers or become um you know, more on the, on the commercial side. Um, and, you know, there's, it's, it's hard work. Like I think, you know, there's a lot of hard work happening in the factory and at the engineering level, you know, on the engineering team, but um, a full day of travel and, and meetings and, 
is also hard work. Um, yeah. And so, so I think, you know, pe- people think it's all wining and dining or whatever, but uh, it is, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I come home after a long day of meetings and dinner or whatever, and absolutely exhausted. So, um, but yeah, maybe uh, it's good. You know, uh, most of my dealings, I, I've kind of had engineers along with me or the technical team along with me. So uh, we've all kind of experienced that together. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, I guess to wrap up here, so I'll, I'll certainly, uh, we, we can work on it. I can make sure, check, check the show notes if you're listening. We, we can have any links or, or whatever to the website, your LinkedIn page, um, RightSpeed's sure. LinkedIn page. Is there any place else in particular that you would point people to if, if they're uh, intrigued by the conversation and want to learn more? Well, one of the things that's happening in electrification today is um, the special purpose acquisition company process of where investors will take, let's say, 200 to $300 million. They will, they will take that cash. They'll list it onto a stock exchange, either NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange, and then they'll go out and look for target companies. Um, and when they find them, they'll do a merger, a reverse merger. And that company then becomes effectively you know, publicly listed. And that's turned into like a verb now. We call it a SPAC process or SPACing. And, uh, and, and what happens in that process is companies that were in you know, stealth mode or they, they didn't disclose a lot publicly, they now have to disclose a lot about their technology, about their, you know, their situation, their customer relationships and so forth. And so um, if you go to, and I'm not going to name names, but there's a bunch of these, uh, you know, uh, a, lot of, a lot of SPAC companies, but in the battery electric space, a lot of them as well. Go read the SPAC decks and look through the technology disclosure uh, pages um, because there's a lot of great information there. And you can kind of, you begin to see like who's integrating other technologies and who have their own, you know, technology because it's often hard to understand, you know, if you see a vehicle and it's got a name on the side of it, the technology inside may not be really generated from that company. It may just be integrated from that company. Um, And you can learn all kinds of other stuff around compensation and people's uh, order book and so forth. And the uh, corollary to that then would be if you were to look at right speed, even though not, not publicly available, right. But it's uh, you guys are developing everything from the ground up, right? That, that's the underlying point. Like look, yeah. look at the engineering and, and that's, you know, the, the, when I first came to the facility and met the engineering team, is what attracted me. I, you know, it wasn't um, maybe as flashy or as we, we almost no outbound marketing, um, but the technology was is solid. And, um, and, and you know, the, the opportunity to help commercialize that technology was the draw for me. And, um, and that's why, you know, I enjoy this conversation and all the conversations we're having with, with customers. And just in a few short months, we're building, um, I would say a little bit of a reputation uh, from our coming out party, if you will, and and lining up um, projects and and you know uh, additional orders to the ones that we already have. Very cool. Well, Alan, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. This has been a lot, a lot of fun for me. Definitely learned a lot. It's been cool to hear what you're doing at Right Speed, and uh, yeah, we wish you best of luck. Yeah, and people can reach out to me if they have any questions, anything we've talked about, or anything about Right Speed or or EV charging in general. I'm happy to. Uh, Happy Where would talk. be the best place for them to find you? Uh, message, uh, you know, just connect me on LinkedIn is probably the easiest way. Um, on email, it's alan at rightspeed.com, A-L-A-N. So um, easy to remember.
Sounds good. Well, thanks again. Okay. Thanks, Brandon. The Future Mobility Podcast is brought to you by FEV. For more than 40 years, FEV has been a global leader in the development of mobility solutions for the transportation industry. With a team of experts passionate about innovation through the design, development, integration, and validation of turnkey vehicle and propulsion system technologies, FEV is your partner for the development of future mobility solutions. I'm your host, Brandon Bartnick. If you want to learn more or get in contact, share feedback or questions, the best place to find me is on LinkedIn at Brandon Bartnick. Thanks for listening.